Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, a podcast with Tom Fox and Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon and myself continue our exploration of all things Wirecard with our discrepancy episode. We take a look at dissuasions by Marcus Braun, the Bundestag uh, investigation, the accumulation of abnormalities, auditors, more political fallout, and often backfooted through the entire process. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm back with Mikhail Ryder-Gordon in our continuing uh, look at Wirecard for the podcast, The Wirecard Series. No, that's not right. The Wirecard Saga. Uh, Lies, spies, and corporate crime, The Wirecard Saga. All right, let's start that over. (laughs) This conference will now be recorded. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back for another episode of The Wirecard Saga. In this podcast, we take a look at the lies, spies, and corporate crimes involving Wirecard. I, of course, am joined by Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, and we today have a great episode for you, Dirty Deeds Down Under. So with that, Mikhail, what is the um, current events to bring us up to date uh, on this week in Wirecard? Oh, here we go with episode, lucky episode number 13. Uh, Truly, the debacle that keeps giving holiday season bounty. Uh, let's open. Let's open with an update that was just released. Now, uh, remember our Sean Magarachanam. Oh, I'm sure I just butchered his name. The director of Citadel Corporate Services out of Singapore. He'd already been charged with 11 counts of fraud, and we caught up with him. Uh, I think he, he had some more charges added, maybe back in September. Well, earlier today, he was charged with another three counts. Of falsifying letters from Citadel. You know, the ones where he erroneously represented that his Singaporean accounting firm held mm, certain amounts of cash and escrow accounts on behalf of Wirecard. So apparently, an additional 377 and a half million euros that mm, didn't actually exist. And this accounts for roughly half the missing greater Wirecard money. So these additional allegations bring the total number of charges against this guy up to 14 and and total about 1.2 billion euros in cash uh, that essentially is not there that he claimed was. And, and that was only for the frauds he committed on behalf of Wirecard between 2016 and 2018. So you have to imagine, he is probably ruining the day he ever met Jan Marsala, Henry O'Sullivan, and the Wirecard team. I mean, don't you kind of wonder? Okay, so let's dive into what's gone on this past week. Recriminations are flying. The German Bundestag's investigative committee, the IC, continues to probe deeply all aspects of the Wirecard saga, right? The auditors, the regulators, the former employees, the German intelligence community, the heart of the German government, foreign financial intelligence units, bankers, lenders, hedge funds, and the IC's hearings have definitely stirred the pot. Listeners, recall back in episode 10, I discussed how Opus had failed to pass along a warning about Wirecard it received from EY back in February 2019. Just sat on it, saying it wasn't their job to do anything about this. Well, they appear to now be attempting to make up for that failing. How? Last week, I discussed how two of the EY partners called to testify before the IC had told the committee that because they were under an active investigation by Opus, they wished to keep their peace for the time being. EY expressed being a wee bit peeved with Opus because the agency had told the IC that it had quietly referred their findings into these two EY partners to the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office only a couple of weeks after initially opening their investigation. Well, the Munich public prosecutor this week confirmed that, yes, they have launched a criminal probe into the actions of the two EY partners, citing the auditor's actions during the 2015 through 2017 Wirecard audits. Opus, in its referral to the public prosecutor, 
wrote that they, quote, suspected these two EY partners knew the information being published in the audit reports was, quote, factually incorrect. Now, this period of time ties back to when KPMG was sniffing through Wirecard Asia's sock drawer, looking for evidence to support the whistleblower allegation to fraud. EY's response to this confirmation of the criminal investigation into two of its people? Outrage. It claims it has bent over backward to assist Opus, sending in response to questions Opus sent them back in June, a 300-plus page report with thousands of pages of supporting documentation. EY is fuming that Opus, claiming barely had time to process their tome before Opus was sending it off recommendation to the prosecutor, so unfair. The IC hasn't been terribly sympathetic to EY, do you blame them, telling them to stop trying to pin blame on others. One of the more outspoken MPs on the IC, Florian Tonkar, who we've heard from before, who is a former lawyer, questioned EY's assertion that German confidentiality laws precluded their audit partners from testifying to the IC. Remember, EY has mounted a court challenge claiming they need the high court to clarify and provide a, quote, legally effective release from their supposed confidentiality obligations. (laughs) Come on, EY, suck that lower lip back in. There'll be time enough for you pouting when discovery kicks in during all those civil lawsuits have been filed against your firm. Your secrets really will be bared then. But EY has more reasons than just the criminal investigation going in Munich and the investor lawsuits to be upset. In addition to Germany's proposed legislation to reform audit practices, the UK's Department of Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy base which is successor agency to BIS, is now on the brink of publishing a reform proposal directed at Britain's audit sector. The proposal is expected before Christmas, so the big four's Christmas socks will be well-stuffed. Base has actually referenced the Wirecard scandal as one of the (laughs) impetus behind the reform effort, citing Wirecard and Danske Bank, both EY audit clients. Oh. That has to sting a little bit. Now, several civil society and activist groups have advocated the British government temporarily block EY from all public sector contracts in the country for three years. Ooh, isn't that throwing sand in the wound? One of them, Spotlight, has accused EY of, quote, grave professional misconduct and questioned the firm's integrity. The British government has already handed oversight Uh, of auditing firms to the newly minted Audit Reporting and Governance Authority, ARGA, and given the new agency some toothy enforcement powers. Now, expect one or more of the major audit firms in that country to get bitten in the near future. As one business academician at City University London was quoted saying, the problems lie with the strong incentives that exist within the firms to engage in the practices which fail to protect the public interest. Argo, responsible for supervising the audit profession in the UK and Ireland, has proposed changes that would, quote, clarify, hey, EY, there's that word again, that would clarify that auditors hold a direct responsibility to look for wrongdoing. This will no doubt prove slightly confusing for the big four, as the UK and Germany tighten the audit sector's rules whilst the U.S.'s SEC has really recently just relaxed audit independence rules. In fairness, the SEC took the opinion that past technical violations diverted the attention of auditors, executives, and the audit committees, and that the new rules in the U.S. will somehow result in the audit clients, committees, and auditors now really zeroing in on the threats to auditor objectivity and impartiality. Uh-huh. Now, the Council of Institutional Investors was not impressed with this. Well, with Wirecard as the poster child of absent independence, why would they be? In its annual budget legislation for 2021, which approves the federal budget for the forthcoming year, Germany actually invoked Wirecard by name, saying, the Wirecard scandal is another example of organized irresponsibility 
which undermines trust in the state and potentially damages the federal budget in the millions of dollars through investor lawsuits. Hmm. The U.S. promulgated Sarbanes-Oxley in the wake of Enron, but it seems in recent years to have drifted away from acknowledging the critical role independent and objective auditors play in providing confidence to the markets. I guess they'll just have to hope the British and German audit reforms somehow have a positive tangential effect. And speaking of audit reports, it emerged this week that our favorite malfeasant and fugitive from, from justice, former COO Jan Marsalek, appears to have played fast and loose with both German banking laws and what little governance rules Wirecard AG had. I know, listeners, if you've learned one thing from this series, it is that largely Wirecard senior management made careers out of flouting German anti-money laundering laws. And if what were one of their former supervisory board members told us last week is correct, governance, schmubbernance, nice idea, shame about the reality. Listen to last week's Inconsistencies episode if you missed it. So why is this news this week? Because we're back to an EY audit report. Only this report, it was the audit report for the subsidiary Wirecard Bank. Supposedly, Wirecard Bank had its own management and supervisory boards, separate and apart from those of Wirecard AG. Wirecard Bank was supposed to act independently and maintain that independence from its parent company. Executives from the parent, like Marsalek, were not supposed to have any control over the bank. Now, remember, Wirecard the bank was regulated by Boffin, willy old toothless Boffin, and we'll talk about them in a moment. So here's what is said to have happened. Remember from a few weeks ago, episodes, I think it was nine and 10, I talked about how Marsalek liked to give loans to Wirecard business partners, being hmm, particularly generous to his fellow OGers, O'Sullivan, Bauer, Nokelman, et al., and then just would forgive or defer the payments of said, or how he'd funnel Wirecard money to subsidiaries littered around the world but forget to tell the board about it. Well, in this instance, a big loan, some 11 million euros plus, that he had directed to Bishlipay in Singapore, and go back to episode nine, Wirecard Masala, if you've forgotten that one, well, he deferred it, as was his habit, but the loan hadn't come from Wirecard AG. Rather, it had come from Wirecard Bank. EY's audit report for the bank flagged the loan and Marsalek's involvement in the deferral and shared the report with Boffin in March 2019. Now, remember, Rajan and Tan are already investigating in Singapore. The FT's most recent story about Wirecard has come out just a few months prior, and short sellers have been publishing damning reports for, what, nine years at this juncture? So EY reports this to Boffin and says, look, as auditor of the bank, we feel we need to inform both the supervisory board and Boffin of Marsalek's inappropriate actions and uh, propensity for risk-taking. But seemingly, neither the board nor Boffin was at all bothered by this. Now, <clears throat> we might wonder why Boffin didn't act on this information. Well, also this week, we learned of some figures that may help explain why Boffin has been a little lackluster as a supervising body of late. The IC submitted written questions to Boffin a couple of weeks back. Their questions specifically asked Boffin to provide insights and figures regarding Boffin's staffing levels and mm, just how many employees were tasked with specific supervisory duties. The response from Boffin arrived the other day. I'll just let the numbers speak for themselves, shall I? Now, putting this in context, Boffin is the German federal regulatory body responsible for supervising some 2,700 banks, 2,700 banks, another 800 financial services institutions that include brokerages, stock exchange, pension funds, and more than 700 insurance companies. Okay, got that in mind? Ready for the staffing numbers? Boffin was thoughtful enough to break them down by category, too. 
So we know that only 15 Boffin employees have oversight for Deutsche Bank. And 12 employees conduct risk analysis across all supervised entities. Now, 106 employees total fill the money laundering prevention department, but that's in contrast to the 646 employees in the securities regulation group. When asked how many Boffin employees of the various departments are regularly involved in, say, on-site audits of banks and financial service providers, total, 105. But in the banking division, only 22 are regularly involved in on-site audits. Boffin then told the IC, well, yeah, okay, so many of these employees are tasked with other duties. It's not as if they are devoted full-time to the auditing work or any one specific task. In fact, usually, on behalf of Boffin employees, folks from the Bundesbank carry out the actual on-site audit work. In 2019, Boffin employees participated in 121 special audits and 74 AML audits. You do the math there, folks. Then the IC queried, well, then how many of your agency's employees and all these various and sundry departments, how many are regularly involved in conducting investigations, like the one we're now dealing with involving Wirecard? Ready? Two for security supervision. Two employees. Two. For market manipulation, a whopping Six employees. Six employees to investigate insider trading. Only five employees at Boffin audit the balance sheets of the entities they supervise. And of all of Boffin's employees, just over a quarter are lawyers. <laughs> so we were all wondering how Boffin could possibly have missed all the hijinks going on in Wirecard. Well, let's leave the insurance companies to one side for just a second and think only of the 3,500-plus FIs that Boffin supervises. Six investigators for any form of market manipulation, which covers fraud. Six for 3,500-plus. Sure, that seems like a reasonable ratio, right? <laughs> so is it any surprise that more fraud involving Wirecard entities continues to be uncovered? I know, say it ain't so. Oh, yes, listeners, there's still more. As you're all now aware, Wirecard and its subsidiaries went into insolvency back in June of this year. Now, remember the primary insolvency administrators, Michael Jaffa in Germany. However, the various subsidiaries each have their own administrator. Well, <laughs> Wirecard UK and Ireland Limited, or Wookie, as it's affectionately known, Remember, this is the entity formed in Ireland that Wirecard AG didn't even know had been created. We listened to episode 10, if you forget. And it forms one of three companies in Ireland, also known as Irish Wirecard Group, or IWG, whose sole shareholder is Wirecard AG. Okay, so you understand this structure. So the administrator, and it's a couple of guys from Deloitte, uh, big four again, filed their initial report with the Irish High Court just the other week, November 30th. And in that report, it said the Garda, that's Ireland's federal police, said the Garda's National Economic Crime Bureau is taking a hard look at Wookie because Wookie's escrow account that ostensibly held some 400 plus million euros, yeah, that money may never have actually existed. Here we go again. Mm -hmm. Despite the escrow account having been included in Wookiee's company assets, that bigger number may have been more of a make-believe one. Now, Wookiee owes its creditors some 83 million euros, but rather awkwardly, the book value of the company shifted from some 556.5 million euros to a net realizable value of 6.7 million euros. Ooh, Wookie had a big appetite. 
High Court Judge uh, Justine Reynolds observes that there are very grave concerns around historic activities Wookiee and Iwig got up to. So both the administrators and the Garda are believed to be liaisoning with counterparts in Germany and other countries regarding the mm, ongoing fraud investigation and intercompany trading. Yeah, it looks like that overall loss for Wirecard and missing monies, never there, it's going to go up by a pretty substantial sum. <sighs> and that, folks, brings us to another Wirecard subsidiary that of Wirecard New Zealand and Australia. You see, just the other day, the insolvency administrator for that entity released their summary report following last month's watershed report. Now, there are some rather interesting elements with respect to how Wirecard NZ functioned, and those in turn are going to lead us directly to this episode's core theme. Examining at a deeper level Wirecard's relationship with Federal Bank of the Middle East, or FBME as it is known, oh, and its Russian sponsors, we're going to look at them too. What does Wirecard NZ have to do with a bank known to be awash in dirty money associated with Russian organized crime, terrorist financing, child sex abuse, serious chemical weapons program, the FSB, transnational organized crime, fraud, and sanctions evasion? Let's take a look. Wirecard NZ began as another company. It started corporate life as Green Fleming Goldfinch Partners in 1991, becoming GFG Group Limited, formed in the summer of 98. In the early years, GFG's website claimed the company had worldwide experience in, quote, cards, electronic banking, EFT slash ATM switching, and payment systems. In 2000, their website, crude as it was, claimed the company had for the past 14 years, uh, having only been formed a year and a half prior, completed projects, quote, around the world. The company offered anything and everything, strategy, advisement, products, project management, systems integration, outsourcing, and the specifics were, well, minimal. In fact, I, I think they probably would have offered to knit socks if you'd, if you'd come asking as a client. There were only four primary officers. The executive directors were Bill Crocker, Peter Goldfinch, Ralph Green, and the group controller, Eric McCarty. And in the spring of 2000, GFG was claiming Card Systems, Inc. to be a partner, along with Consolidated Systems of Florida, a provider of EFT processing software. Now, back then, the company's webpage claimed that they could offer you know, vertical approach services that began with advisory work, and then that would lead to somehow GFG, quote, selling and installing the products identified by them as useful to the client, huh. or horizontal approach, right, consulting services. Judging from the site, it was not a sophisticated operation. Now, the company continued this way for a number of years with no specific projects to speak of and a fair amount of generic consultancy guff, little evidence of genuine expertise. By 2004... GFG claimed to be serving clients in 40 countries across five continents. And the company had added executives to oversee Europe and Australia, but the same leadership stayed in place. And then things began to change. Now, let's pause for a moment and look at what has gone on in parallel during these same years. Now, Jan Marsalek claims to have begun his career as the, quote, co-founder of a e-commerce application software company in 1999. However, by 2000, he's joined Wirecard as a project manager. A year later, he became a manager of IT technology. That lasted a year, and then beginning in 2002, he spent seven years as VP of technology and product development and MD over Wirecard subsidiaries. In all of these roles, he had exposure to the fintech community and to companies offering software related to processing and card services. And remember, Wirecard started to gain traction when it took on credit card processing, particularly for those sectors that Visa and MasterCard didn't approve of. Remember the gambling, the porn, the binary options? And Wirecard had learned to recode these transactions to camouflage their true origins. Wirecard under Masalik had set up shop out of Singapore and was in the business of acquiring processors, mobile payment groups, payment solution companies throughout Asia Pacific, you know, where New Zealand is. 
Now, GFG in 2006 began to change rather dramatically. The website became more sophisticated. Okay, nothing wrong there. But now the company that had allocated small shareholdings to the founders and their family members suddenly had a share register reflecting nominee companies taking on tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of shares. A shareholder from Cyprus appears. GFG is now processing for Visa and MasterCard, amongst others. The company claims at this time to sell proprietary software, but claims to be partnered with much larger software and hardware vendors to the banking and payments industry. In 2011, GFG adds an office in the Philippines. And yes, it's tied to Wirecard's Philippines operations. And they place a sales and marketing person in Singapore. They open an office in Dubai. Sound familiar, listeners? Same locations where Wirecard's fraudulent schemes would be based? Yes, but GFG is ostensibly still an independent company. Wirecard isn't a formal owner or even influence. We don't think. Mm. In 2012, a major change in the company's management team occurs. The founders disappear. Although there's no record of sale of the company, all new leadership appears with only one original GFG member staying on as chair of the board. The all-new leadership of GFG includes a commercial manager, Nadia Trigozova, whose biography on the corporate site claims she gained valuable experience as the auditor with Baker Tilly Rus Audit, the Moscow-based Russian office of Baker Tilly. Interesting side note here. BT Rus Audit was created from a merger of Baker Tilly and Grant Thornton, Russia. You know, Grant Thornton, who would go on to serve as auditor to Wirecard NZ. And recall from episode eight, Baker Tilly was responsible for conducting due diligence on Wirecard's acquisition in China, which crops up here thanks to its nexus to Wirecard NZ. And remember the Baker Tilly partner who was fined a thousand euros by the IC the other week for refusing to testify? Anyway, Wirecard AG is on a massive expansion in 2010 through 2013. And recall what I've been saying that all along, Wirecard was never intended to be legitimate. So as Wirecard AG is acquiring eCredit Plus in the Philippines, a group GFG is tied to, and as Wirecard is securing EasyLink in Singapore, another company GFG is tied to, what happens next? GFG, in February of 2013, appoints Andreas Kazamias as its new CEO. Where did Kazamias come from? He'd worked for Easy Forex, a Cyprus-based virtual foreign exchange company. But before that, he was the CEO of FBME. That's right, the dirtiest bank. We're going to go dive deep into FBME in a moment. Well, let's get a better picture of Kazamias' history first. According to both the press release from GFG at the time of his appointment and Kazamias' social media profiles, he moved around on average every two or three years to various banks in Greece, Cyprus, and the UK. But in the press release announcing Kazamias is taking on the role for GFG, a GFG executive was quoted as saying, Andreas took over a basic card center at FBME and established a successful new card and e-commerce acquiring company from concept through full operation. <laughs> Hold that thought. And that Kazamias had a, quote, long association with GFG Group, beginning when he selected GFG Group's card system whilst CEO of FBME in Cyprus. He's not afraid to push payment products boundaries. Oh, indeed, he is not, as listeners, you will soon learn. Let's shift back to Wirecard Asia for a moment, because at this same moment in time, February 2013, as a former top executive, Dirty Bank, FBME, is taking control of GFG Group, supposedly a private company unrelated to Wirecard at this juncture, but one that is operating with overlapping interests, client relationships, and locality. At Marsalek's direction, 
same month, February 2013, Wirecard Asia in Singapore hires Russian Grigory Kuznetsov as EVP sales to financial institutions responsible for payment services licensing functions in Wirecard Asia. Kuznetsov had trained in computer science at a technical university in Moscow and worked as a systems programmer until the Wirecard appointment. Side note, he's now one of several individuals being investigated by the Singapore authorities for arrestable offenses, as they couch it. And then quietly, at least from GFG's side, where there is not a single mention of the event, I mean nothing, nothing on the website, nothing on their news or blog site, Wirecard acquires all shares in GFG Group on December 2014. Wirecard says in its press release that it purchased all the shares from several financial investors, those nominees that concealed who the true shareholders were. The press release further claimed that GFG had been in business since the 90s, okay, although didn't comport with the corporate filings in New Zealand, and Wirecard crowed that taking on GFG's product portfolio strengthened their positions in Southeast Asia. The acquisition total? More than 33 million euros. Hold on to that figure because (laughs) there's a revelation coming which probably won't be much of a surprise. Once Wirecard took over and GFG formally became Wirecard NZ, which didn't actually happen until February 2016, they just kept the GFG name for a while. They waited two years. However, the issuance of new shares went apace, with Wirecard Technologies picking up nearly a million shares in GFG. In September 2016, new directors are appointed. Kazamias is named as a director, as is, or as are Arne Mathias and Fuxan Ung in Singapore. Names now familiar because the latter two are also under investigation by Singapore's federal police. Right? All right, up there with Guznetsov. Now, interestingly, according to the insolvency administrator to Wirecard NZ, the entity was never really solvent. Wirecard NZ was wholly reliant upon Wirecard AG to cover all of its liabilities and pay for its staff. Why? Because Wirecard NZ employed some 74 people in Greece, another 18 people in the Dominican Republic. Yeah, logical that they have an office in Santo Domingo. 28 in Australia and only 30 in New Zealand. The employees of the entity supposedly worked as technical support on Wirecard Group products. But remember back in episode six, what Michael Yaffa, the administrator over Wirecard's insolvency said about Wirecard's Greek IT services? That Wirecard AG didn't even know of the IT folks in Greece? Wirecard NZ was supposedly paying these 74 people in Greece to do who knows what, Certainly not something the primary company found essential. Wirecard NZ's formal raison d'etre was the development and sales of software products to implement and manage credit and debit card payment solutions to the financial services sector and then the maintenance of said software. Wirecard NZ carried the cost of the Greek office despite its operations being wholly unrelated to Wirecard NZ or even the Australian operations, which seem to have largely only a handful of uh, credit union clients. And who handled Wirecard NZ's accounting? Other Wirecard entities, specifically Wirecard Asia in Singapore, you know, where a significant portion of the greater fraud was orchestrated. Wirecard NZ incurred trading losses in 2017 through 2019, Now, some attributed this to Wirecard AG's, Marsalek, acquisition of Citibank's merchant acquiring business carried by Wirecard NZ. But NZ had lost $8 million in 2018 and was wholly dependent on a five-year, 10 million euro letter of support from the parent company. Wirecard NZ was also being used to move money through its accounts in the Philippines, in fact, 
some of the money in those accounts are now frozen by the Philippine authorities, believed to be tied to the fraudulent transaction that occurred at Marsalik and Bauer's direction in that country. <clears throat> but the New Zealand entity had the same problem with timeliness of its annual reports, filing them late. It was found itself in disputes with various and sundry. Now, in February 2019, or really end of January, the Financial Times published its first story on Wirecard Asia and the suspected forgeries and frauds being conducted out of that entity in its subsidiaries. Remember, this is the Rajan and Tan report coming to light. The story hit in January 30th, and less than a month later, Kazamius swiftly stepped down as director and CEO of GFG and scuttled back to Cyprus. And R. Matthias in Singapore, he too resigned. In early December 2019, Wirecard Technologies, again at Marsalik's direction, dramatically increased their shareholdings in Wirecard NZ, moving 100 million euros into the company. Now, some thought that this was covered to provide cash to fund the acquisition of the Chinese company Allscore. Remember that lobbying effort in Germany with the chancellor's office? And remember the due diligence by Baker Tilly? Yeah, that deal. The share capital of Wirecard NZ increased by 7.5 million euros in December. And the entity used this to settle, quote, all outstanding loans between it and Wirecard Technologies. At least that's what the note said. New Zealand then went and borrowed some $1.85 million from Wirecard AG. Now, the account noted a recharging of costs incurred by the Greek branch, saying that they were not related to the company's products, but were incurred as a result of work undertaken on Wirecard group activities. On that basis, Wirecard NZ recharged Wirecard Technologies $4 million. Everyone following this shell game? See if you can spot the moving pebble under the coconut shells. By the close of 2018, Wirecard NZ had accrued losses of 17 million, negative equity of 3.6 million, but booked revenue from software licensing in the Philippines, Asia, and Australia. By the time Wirecard NZ's assets, such as they were in September of this past year, Change Financial, the company that ended up purchasing what was left of Wirecard NZ, paid about $5.7 million for them. When the insolvency administrators published their reports October, November of this year, Wirecard NZ owned, owed creditors some $8 million in New, New Zealand dollars. And most of the creditors were employees in Greece and the Dominican Republic, or the lawyers or accountants, or other Wirecard entities. So how did Wirecard NZ, formerly GFG Group, become a conduit to Wirecard's fraudulent activities? Let's take a closer look at FBME. Remember back in episodes three and six, we touched on FBME and the fact that a report dating back from 2014 from two private investigators hired to look into allegations that that bank was a massive Russian-sponsored money laundering front for terrorists, traffickers, kleptocrats, dictators, serious chemical weapons program, etc., and tied to Wirecard? In the report, which was shared with FinCEN at the time, the investigators highlighted a MasterCard executive involved in concealing the origins of transactions running through FBME to circumvent the detection mechanisms employed by Visa and MasterCard to block criminal activities. In the report, Wirecard was named as sharing a key account with FBME. The executive was identified as operating at FBME at the bank's headquarters in Cyprus, using his position to direct the concealment of these transactions running through said key account. That was 2014. And at that time, FinCEN banned U.S. financial institutions from doing business with FBME, effectively shutting it out of the global dollar market. Now let's return to Andreas Kazamias, who took on the role of CEO of Wirecard NZ. Remember, since its inception, Wirecard worked to conceal just such dodgy and criminal transactions that it processed on behalf of entities around the world. After all, its core business was serving as an acquirer to the major credit card companies. 
And remember, Wirecard subsidiaries and related entities have been fined for engaging in the concealment of dirty transactions on several occasions by both MasterCard and Visa. Kazamius brought special skills to Wirecard NZ because when he was CEO at FBME from 2003 to 2006, he had specifically selected GFG Group's card processing, card processing software to use at FBME. And there he ran FBME's card services function. The same department the MasterCard executive cited in the report was housed in. So let's look closer at FBME. Federal Bank of the Middle East was actually registered in Tanzania, had been at the Cayman Islands before that. It was founded by a Lebanese banker, Fadi Saab. Now, the bank's true operations were headquartered in Cyprus. It got its start in the 90s, early 90s. But it was another individual, Mudala Khoury, a Syrian-Russian banker who would transform FBME into what was thought to be the dirtiest bank on the planet. Khoury was based in Moscow and at the collapse of the Soviet Union set about with the assistance of Russian intelligence over a decade, building a complex network of banks, legitimate front companies, and offshore shells through which organized crime, Russian kleptocrats, and government agents, sanction evaders, and dictators could move money. Khoury, Matt Saab, founded uh, FBME and realized an opportunity. As Finson would later note in its notice nearly a decade and a half later, FBME attracted high-risk shell companies and was known to have nearly non-existent anti-money laundering controls. Khoury really saw an opportunity. He had registered hundreds of offshore companies that held accounts at FBME. One alone, Balak Ventures, registered in the BVI, would funnel some $500 million through FBME accounts between 2006 and 2014, when the bank ceased to fully operate. Just in the BVI, Hori was linked to over 100 shell companies. And Hori and some of his employees, several of which are family members, and some of his business <coughs> associates acquired a 70% stake in another financial institution, the Russian Financial Society, because, well, they needed a digital wallet, digital wallet service called Sendi that RFS owned. Now, Khoury was particularly effective at moving money at the behest of Russia to less salubrious state actors such as Syria and North Korea. An investigative report by the Cyprus Mail identified Balak Ventures receiving some $2.2 million from the Russian tax fraud exposed by Sergei Magnitsky. You know, the one that Magnitsky Act is named for. There, an, an individual named Alexander Parapelichne, uh, who would turn whistleblower, used his shell companies to also launder the fraud proceeds through one of his companies. $1.1 million was sent to Balak Ventures' FBME bank account, predating the Magnitsky case by a number of years. FBME was tied by FinCEN to terrorist financing and was identified as housing accounts belonging to front companies for serious chemical weapons and ballistic missile programs. Many of the accounts were linked back to Khruri. This past summer, Global Witness published a report tying a military development center, the Scientific Studies and Research Center, responsible for Syrian leader al-Assad's chemical weapons program, back to an account the SSRC held at FBME. The U.S. had imposed sanctions on the SSRC back in 2005, so Khoury helped evade these sanctions by running Russian money through accounts at FBME on on to SSRC. Now, Global Witness's July 2020 report linked Khoury to several key individuals in Russian intelligence services. But the ties to associates of Putin were exposed initially in a series of leaked files from FBME that were obtained by BuzzFeed in 2017. The files evidenced millions of dollars moving on behalf of Russian organized crime and questionable Kremlin folk and business figures involved in stealing state assets, 
all running through FBME. And then on to Deutsche Bank, there they are again, helping to legitimize the transactions and get dirty money into the Western system. These same leaked files evidenced FBME holding accounts for ISIS, drug traffickers, porn barons, repressive dictators, and even entities associated with operating and hosting child pornography sites. The bulk of FBME's business came from Russian clients who relied upon the bank to funnel their money into the global financial system. Tying back to Wirecard, a goodly portion of these high-risk and illicit transactions were obscured within FBME by tricking international card payment systems via concealing their true nature so the processing would proceed and not be blocked. How was it done? Here's an example. People like Kazamias knew enough about the major card processors to know what would trigger either fraud warnings or the blocking of transactions. So, for instance, with a particular porn baron, a baron not in the true title sense, but meaning he owned and operated a ludicrous number of porn sites, this porn king was given a network of accounts at FBME, and then the bank's card services group would ping phantom transactions between them, providing a sufficient ratio of innocuous or innocent transactions to lower the fraud ratio and thereby allow the dirty transaction to proceed. And they would proceed through that shared account with Wirecard. FBME and its card services department had learned how to devise ways in which to miscode transactions, right? The same old, same old. Remember Wirecard clients like the binary options companies and the online marijuana marketplace in the U.S.? Same trick. Obscure the payment source in order to get it past the visas and the MasterCards. FBME's card services would purchase bulk prepaid credit cards for the bank and run them through the system with innocent transactions so as to bring down the overall fraud rate so Visa and MasterCard wouldn't notice. Visa did get around to noticing, as did MasterCard, if you recall the right the exec who got called out at FBME. Visa even tried to audit FBME in 2012. The audit identified thousands of dodgy transactions linked back to online gambling, porn, and nutraceuticals. Right? Deja vu. So, ready to hear who the auditors of FBME were? <laughs> oh, listeners, that's not fair. How did you guess EY? Really? Yep, and KPMG. In 2013, KPMG claimed in its audit report, quote, FBME basically fulfills the requirements set out by the Cyprus regulator and is in principle, principle, in compliance with EU standards. Okay, this this is months before FinCEN blocked all dollar transactions listing FBME as the highest risk money laundering <laughs> operation that it was. So which branch of KPMG wrote this flannel? Frankfurt. KPMG's major client, Deutsche Bank, the correspondent bank to FBME for all of Europe. Yep. After FinCEN labeled FBME a major money laundering concern in 2014 and blocked those dollar accounts, FBME's law firms, Hogan Levels, working with Quinn Emanuel, brought EY in to audit. EY's considered opinion? Oh, yes, FBME's AML policies were, quote, right in line with the applicable requirements, despite EY having reviewed transactions with money laundering links to serious chemical weapons program, cybercrime, and Russian organized crime. And hey, EY's client, Wirecard. Nothing to see there, folks. I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. The only way the scale and scope of financial crimes such as Wirecard and FBME represent can occur is with the connivance of a host of facilitators. The audit firms and accountants that overlook all those red flags and blatantly fraudulent figures and then who vouch for the solidity of those entities to the markets. The law firms that fight the investigative reporters, the whistleblowers, and even the regulators and governments who try to enforce existing laws and legislate tougher ones. 
any to Western financial institutions like Wirecard and correspondent behemoths like Deutsche Bank to look lightly or actively obfuscate the origins of the monies pouring in. In her book, Putin's People, Reuters investigative reporter Catherine Belton highlights certain cases that exemplify the long game Russia set out to play when the Soviet Union fell. Rather than embrace the West, Russian security services and organized crime really determined to slowly infiltrate it, seeking to corrode it from within. Now, she quotes a former KGB officer who said, quote, wide-scale infiltration of the Western financial system by Russian organized crime started right on the eve of the collapse of the Soviet Union. The main players of the game were high-ranking officials of the Soviet Communist Party, top KGB leadership, and top bosses of the criminal world. And this infiltration, it hasn't ceased. Now it's Putin's party, the FSB, and other security services. It's still organized crime. And it's expanded to include kleptocrats and autocrats, dictators and traffickers, to hijack the West's financial systems. When I say the long game, I'm referring to placing useful people in places like Wirecard Asia's Singapore office, or Wirecard New Zealand, and Wirecard AG, so that over decades, dirty money can flow through and across the entity you have shaped. It is only when the acid of that dirty money finally corrodes the corporate pipes of the vehicle you built, and it all comes tumbling down, do most people become aware of it. By then, those that built it have already moved on to another vehicle, whilst we in the West are left to pick up the pieces and figure out how it was allowed to go on for so long. This Thursday, the IC meets again for another round of hearings. I can't wait to find out what we learn from this next session, so do tune back in next week. I'm Mikhail Ryder-Gordon with Affiliated Monitors, and as always, a big thank you to Tom Fox. You are the Compliance Evangelist and the Compliance Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with the Wirecard Saga, the latest developments in this corporate scandal and deep dives into the transnational criminal elements of all of it. As I said in the introduction, Mikhail, Ryder, Gordon, and myself are going to be taking a deep dive on the Wirecard case over the next several weeks. I hope you will join us again. This special podcast series will focus on the events uh, on the ground and each week, and then we're going to take a deep dive. Some of the topics we're going to cover include Germany, Inc., the regulatory response, what this means for the overall fintech and EU regulatory world, and a variety of other interesting angles to the Wirecard case. I hope you will stick with us throughout this series. I know you will find it incredibly enjoyable as this is one of the largest frauds uh, since the Enron Worldcon days and the largest accounting fraud in Germany since World War II. It's going to be a ton of fun. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate that on iTunes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.